Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybel Education. I'm Pete Wright, and right over there is Howard Tybel. Hello, Howard. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing very well. We have such a fascinating conversation in store today. We're talking about sustainability, sustainability issues that, uh, and and sustainability issues, their relationship to financial issues. And we're coming at this from a little bit of a different uh, uh, perspective, I think, today. Our guest is, well, let me just set him up here, Gil Friend. He is a systems ecologist and business strategist with more than 40 years experience in business and communications and environmental innovation. And he's here to join us for this conversation about sustainability today. Now, who is this Gil Friend guy? Well, he's one of the very founders of the sustainability movement. In fact, he was one of the five inaugural members of the Sustainability Hall of Fame, so named by the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. And according to The Guardian, He's one of the 10 most influential sustainability voices in America. So I am thrilled to welcome influential sustainability voice, Gil Friend, to Navigating Change. Welcome, Gil. Pete, thanks. I'm glad to be here. So, Gil, let's uh, set a context for uh, what you're doing here. You and I have had the privilege over the last three years of being in the network with Fernando Flores and being both uh, a contributor, a student, uh, and getting to know each other in this world uh, as we as we look at innovations uh, that we're trying to produce in our respective spaces. And I'm particularly interested in this conversation because there's there, the work that you do uh, really has a direct and indirect contribution to education and what education leaders should be thinking about. And rather than having a prescribed outcome here, I'd like the three of us really to be exploring this topic of what is the nature of the work that you live in that really shows up or should be showing up more in the nature of education. So I'm opening that up as a provocation for either of you to open up with a statement or a question uh, to start this exploration. Well, well, let me, let me, if I can, set a frame real quickly, Howard, uh, because sustainability means a lot of things to a lot of people and is a new term for many. Uh, and so the general connotation of that term is, um, and this is a definition from the UN some decades ago, is how do we meet the needs of present generations without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Uh, to put it in more familiar terms, this is about uh, not eating the seed corn. You know, uh, people have known for eons that when you harvest an agricultural crop, you save some of the seed to plant for next year. And you preserve that, you protect that. Uh, you protect it so much that in fact, in, in um, uh, the siege of Stalingrad in World War II, people starved to death rather than eat the seed corn that was being preserved for the genetic heritage uh, of their country. So it gets extreme. But we know, we know this is common sense. You don't cannibalize the future to protect the present, at least not if you're sensible, which is uh, maybe not what we are. Um, the other way to think about this, and the frame that I use, is that um, how do we have a prosperous human economy that meets the needs of people on this planet but that does it in harmony with the living systems that sustain all life and all wealth on this planet. Mm. Uh, how do we learn from the 3.8 billion years of research and development that's been done for us for free 
by Earth's living systems and learn how to run our human societies in harmony with those laws. So that's the frame that I'm coming from. And in the realm of education, I think this raises two important questions. One is, what are we teaching? I'm very old-fashioned. I think of education as educare, drawing forth, you know, bringing something out from our students, building their capacity, not so much pouring facts into their heads, but orienting them to be creative and effective people in the world they're going to live in. How we do that? What are we paying attention to? Are we addressing the right subjects in the right context with the right ways that are building capacity? So that's kind of the, what I think you would have called the internal focus of the education mission. Then at the same time, educational institutions are institutions. College campuses are cities. They have the full range of diversity of infrastructure and technology and services that a larger small city. And as such, they have a footprint of impact on climate and water resources and transportation in the region and so forth. Uh, they are they use resources like all of us do, and those have impacts. And so the question there is, how does an institution operate most effectively uh, in a very changing world uh, where we'll see great shifting constraints around energy and water um, and uh, biodiversity? I love, I love, I love that. I, I'm also watching Pete nodding his head. Uh, yeah. You know, a conversation I've been planting or building with folks more and more is the idea that we're planting seeds for future generations, not around sustainability conversations, but thinking about what education needs to be in the future and, and can we get our orientation out of the short-term next, next budget cycle and think about how are we going to set up the next generation of leaders so they can take the baton and really begin to offer a certain kind of learning that you were talking about, Gil, where it's about building capacities and skills uh, and meeting the, the sort of the, the new capacity students have for, have for learning. Um, so this planting seeds idea, I think, resonates in so many areas in the work that we're all doing these days. I, for me, the, the question is, it just keeps coming up. The, the easy one, the low-hanging fruit, when I think about, you know, how do I align this to my kind of locus of experience, which is in higher education, it's the it's the physical plant stuff. It's the stuff you talked about at the end, uh, which is the, the footprint that uh, higher education institutions have on the planet, on the water, on resources. And I think, you know, we, we have uh, a number of wonderful examples of uh, institutions that have gone down this road and said, we're going to we're going to change the way we think about this in our new lead designed uh, engineering facility and the rainwater will help us flush our toilets. And it's all very fantastic. But there is this other angle that uh, I run into around responsibility and how leaders how we expect to align today's leaders around their responsibility for changing the cultural impact that we have on sustainability. How do leaders, how do you help leaders uh, change the way they align to their responsibility to help the people who work for them and the people who are members of their community take on the responsibility of something as important as sustainability initiatives? Howard. You know, I love I love that you're raising, you know, that's a very practical, the two elements, the physical plant and how do we align leaders around responsibilities. But what's fascinating about this, Pete, and I'm curious if you also find this, Gil, is the how often is what gets us trapped. We we don't even know how to be in conversation with each other 
about the nature of the problem that we're trying to solve. And very often, because it's the most tangible question, less tangible, Pete, the second one was actually, I think, a much broader question, which is the nature of orienting our leaders to hold a certain responsibility. But behind that is, is the, the nature of how they're engaging their communities, the mood that, that their communities are in or not in, and how do we cultivate a different kind of listening that I see is missing, right? So Gil, when, I, when you think about the world you travel in, what are you discovering in terms of how people are opening themselves or still closed off because they don't get it that they need to have a different kind of conversation that is that that I believe that you can bring and I'm attempting to bring in the education space. That, that's a bunch of very powerful questions. Let me see if I can untangle them uh, one by one. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned mood, and um, the moods that I find in my work are, are varied. There are, frankly, there are a lot of people in denial. This is not an issue that concerns me or it doesn't concern me now. It's for later on. It's for my kids or grandkids to deal with. Um, and in a world of, uh, you know, you mentioned short planning cycles, quarterly budgets or annual budgets, it's very challenging for people uh, conceptually as well as institutionally to think in three or five or 10 or 20 year or 50 year kind of timeframes. It's critically important because if you think about the capital budget for university, you're making plans to build buildings that may take 10 years to build and may stand for 50 or 100 years. So the situations that you will be in in 20 or 50 years are critically important. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, where we've just come through um, you know, a horrible week of um, uh, terrible air hundreds of miles away from, from some fires in Northern California, which, by the way, shut down University of California, Berkeley for right. several days. Uh, here in the San Francisco Bay region, we expect that the San Francisco Bay will rise somewhere between three and six feet over the course of this century, possibly more, possibly less. Nobody knows exactly. But when you're planning for critical infrastructure that may be near the bay, where all of our highways are, for example, many of our hospitals, all of our airports, campuses of universities. How do you plan? Where do you cite things? What requirements do you put on people? What expectations for climate resilience will you demand of developers and builders? Because if we don't lay that out clearly now, come 10, 20, 50 years, there will be catastrophes and the taxpayers will be asked to absorb those costs. And it makes more sense to try to connect the responsibility and the actions and the impacts of those actions very directly. You know, I love what you're saying here, and it really provokes me to think about how easy it is to fall into a mood of uh, resignation. And, 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 it's, and, and therefore, it makes it so much more uh, comfortable to just sort of focus on what you got to get done in the next year. The sea level rising, the impact uh, on the shoreline, and these critical infrastructure uh, pieces in not just San Francisco, but around any area that it, uh, on the on the shores of you know around the perimeter of our country. The question for you and others is: All right, so what? How do we engage in this? Because we're not going to be able to solve it all. So how do we engage in a way? where we take a step and keep taking steps in the right direction, knowing that we can't solve it entirely. 
and we can't solve it all by ourselves, but we can make progress in really substantial ways. So, you know, you, I think you're right to see a mood of resignation is very common. People say, well, oh, you know, there's nothing I can do. This is just how it is. Uh, and, you know, behind every mood, as we've learned, Howard, is an assessment, right? And the assessment behind that mood is things are screwed up. I am powerless. There are no options. Nothing will work. That's one kind of a set of assessments. There's another set of assessments, which unfortunately is very common, which is we can't afford to do this. Uh, I'd love to do the right thing, but I can't afford to do it. And behind that is an assumption, which frankly has bedeviled me during my entire career, which is that most people, at least in this country, think that you have to choose between making money and making sense. You can build green, but it's going to cost you too much money. You can't afford to. Therefore, you're going to build brown and just kind of deal with it later on. The problem with that is that it's wrong. Uh, it's not supported by the data. It's not supported by hundreds, if not thousands exa of examples that I can give you of architects, developers, designers, builders, corporate um, executives, um, city governments who have said, no, no. What we need to do is we need to serve both needs. We need to do stuff that sustains our community and its well-being in the long term. And we need to do it in ways that are economic and practical and achievable within our current te technologies. And so for just as one example, which may be relevant to your audiences, there's a growing trend in the world for what are called net zero buildings. Buildings that, that have net zero energy consumption, or in other words, they generate as much energy from harvesting solar and wind energy as they used to operate the building. Ten years ago, people said that was impossible. Three years ago, I was at a meeting with an architectural group called Integral, who said our response to people who say that it's impossible is, here are 41 of these buildings that we have built. Office buildings, warehouses, commercial centers, etc. And people said, yeah, but they don't they cost more? And they said, yeah, well, we've done the analysis, and the incremental cost on these 41 buildings was exactly zero. It, now, think about that. You build a building that has no energy demand for no more cost than a building that is tied to the utility, you've immediately generated a return on investment, and frankly, it's hard to measure because you've cut your energy spend with no incremental capital cost. Well, what's, what's interesting about that example is those kinds of examples are what people need to see to begin to have a, a certain confidence it's worth exploring with a different mood. Because most people, in the absence of seeing evidence like that, uh, will not jump in. It's, you know, it's the idea behind the, the early adopters and, the, and, the, and on the other side, the laggards. And there's this group that's right after the early adopters who are waiting to see if it's worth investing in. And then, and then it creates this this uh, momentum that um, I think we're all looking to produce in the areas we're trying to make a contribution. You're absolutely right. There's nothing like tangible examples of success that people can point to. They can talk to people who've worked with them. They can see the data. They can see the economics. They can see the performance. This, by the way, is a tremendous area of, of curriculum opportunity for universities. Uh, but equally important to seeing the data is getting people's physical bodies into these structures.
Yeah, because that challenges that assumption that, you know, if if, if we're going back to your sort of a development curve, right, it, it was impossible to do these kinds to build these kinds of buildings. Now we've built these buildings. The innovation economy is sort of rising to meet the market. And eventually the, they will become standard. That's what we want. We want these not to be famous anymore. Uh, right. They need to be the norm. And we have, to, as you say, we have to have people who go in because I hear all the time people who say, oh, yeah, that's one of those uh, net zero buildings. It's a lead building. It must be crap to work there. Right. And that's not true either. Turns out it's better to work there. People are happier. People are healthier. Absenteeism is down. Productivity is up. The benefits of that dwarf the benefits from the energy savings. But this is not right. the usual thing that people measure when they are setting out to design something. Well, it's interesting. Listening to, to you, to Kill, it produces a mood that we are we are moving in the right direction, right? And that's the, you know, it, it's interesting knowing that we can be listening from a, a lens of this is an insurmountable challenge or from a mood of, you know what? There is possibilities here, and I can see just even how you frame this from your experience. This invites people to open themselves up to be part of the conversations. Talk a little bit about the the nature of getting people around you. Uh, it, you know, I know the work you did at Palo Alto, which is really sustainability for the entire city. What did you find helped? produce the right conversation when it came to something as big as sustainability for a city? What were some of the things you did that our listeners would say, these are some strategies or ways of being that would really help produce change in our universe? I think the heart of it touches on what you just said about you know, insurmountable uh, challenges and shifting that to interesting challenges. Like, what might be possible here? What could happen here? And that involves connecting, you know, what people really care about uh, with their experience of what exists on the landscape. Uh, you know, the proven examples that we talked about before to realistic steps that they could take that work in their own world and that address concerns they already have. It's not like everybody's all of a sudden going to become 100% focused on climate change. But people are focused on having a comfortable home and safety for their families and ability to get to work and clean food and clean water. And if we can look at how do we get, how do we handle those things better while also dealing with these looming risks of climate change, then we start to have something. So it really means meeting people where they are, hearing what their concerns are. Not everybody's are the same, you know. And one of the challenges you find in a city. Uh, where we not only have a bureaucracy like colleges and everybody else has, but we have democracy. You know, uh, our our city staff works for what fifteen different department directors who work for one city manager, who works for nine people on the city council, who work for a board of directors of sixty six thousand people in Palo Alto. If you can find that common commitment, which we were able to do there, um, uh, you know, not only did we pass unanimously one of the most aggressive municipal climate plans in the country. But probably a more useful measure is that back two years ago, we had a climate summit um, on a sunny Sunday afternoon in January with two football games playing, and we had more than 500 people spend an entire day engaged on these issues, uh, expressing their commitment to their right. community, 
to their values, to their families, and to what they saw as the possibility in this community. And that went on, speaking of democracy, that went on to encourage a city council, which tends to be, you know, very pragmatic, focused on specifics, focused on near term, to step up and adopt a goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions 80% by 2030, not the international target of 2050, but by 2030, without knowing exactly how they were going to do it. And that was, I really salute them for that because they, their tendency is to say, we will endorse a plan if we know exactly how we're going to do it. And in this case, they said, you know, we know some of it. We can sense the direction, but we're going to step out of ahead of ourselves and plant the flag. This is so relevant. And orient everybody to how might we get there? What could we do together that could open up new possibilities of cooperation and innovation? So let's just do something unprecedented. You know, this is such a simple yet important thing you're raising, and that is this idea of putting our energy in building a community of engaged individuals who have a shared concern with leaders who have the capacity and authority to say, this is what we're going to do in the end, but ultimately less about what decisions do we want to make but first producing the engagement and 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 then from that engagement what what will happen is we're putting our energy with those who are going to be part of the change and we have to recognize there will always be people who are going to remain disengaged but in education gill there is too much emphasis on the minority who are outspoken against a certain direction whether whatever the direction is sometimes outright antagonistic oh, against yeah. it not yeah. right I and mean, and we need to recognize that's always going to be there and you know one of the, my messages to education leaders and and they see that they they fall into this trap is we need to look at the masses who will go with the change that you're interested in if you engage them you give them the why you have them explore what the benefits are you have people who are champions, and you put, you take your energy off of those minority that will end up um, – if you put your energy there, you're not going to get any momentum. And, and education – you talk about democracy. Uh, education is designed similar to our government with judicial, executive, executive and legislative branch whose basically checks and balances – keep decisions from happening in any kind of velocity. And that's what shared governance is in education. Um, and it takes, it takes a crisis, unfortunately, or it takes a bold leader saying, we're going to put a new thing in place. So for a school that is an all-girls school for its inception, to say we're going to go co-ed, that would be a significant shift for alumni. And there are some schools that are recognizing that they have to think more broadly about that little topic. But you will also have people in that world saying that will lose the specialness of the institution. And ultimately what we're challenged by is the, is the, is the culture that's behind that that has so much weight to keep us from moving forward. So. What you're sharing about building an engaged community is the way, in my experience too, to start to produce the shift. Well, you, you have to because, um, you know, 
first of all, in the engaged community is where you're going to find the wisdom of what to do. None of us is as smart as all of us. Nice. Uh, so that multi-perspectival, diverse experience being brought to the table is really critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, the other is, of course, you're not getting anything done without people buying in on it. And the challenge for leaders is that they have to be both courageous uh, and willing to push the boundaries and not necessarily have everybody happy, but also do yeah. that in a way that engages people sufficiently so that there's momentum that will, you know, that will allow you to move forward, that will sweep along the people who are uncertain. And yeah. the folks who are negative, you know, they'll deal with it later and catch up. The challenge is it. that if you want to have everybody buy in on everything, you can't move. So exactly. there's your dilemma. So so let's talk about courage for a second. What does, what does courage look like? You know, I, I say this all the time. Leaders have to be courageous. If you're a leader out there listening to this, you're going, all right, where do I need to show up differently um, it seems to me courage means that you're going to put at risk something, likely your reputation, by taking a risk to do something that may fail. I I always start with the etymology, you know, and the root of and the root of courage is cura, which is heart. So it you know, uh, you know, on on the face of it, courage is about acting or persevering in the face of fear or uncertainty. But what it fundamentally is, is being able to, to speak from your heart, to act from your heart, uh, from the kind of moral conviction that lives there. That's not a trivial thing that, that, you know, it's so easy to fall into a more practical way of looking at this and saying, all right, doing something that risks, uh, identity. But ultimately what you're pointing to, you know, you might fail, but you're pointing to the willingness to bring yourself to the conversation. And when you do that, in some ways, there's a certain freedom that I take. If I'm, if I'm leading from my heart and from what I care about, my conviction, it is easy for me to step into that if I'm willing to put that out in the world. It's easy. It's easier, you know, and there are still practical constraints. You have to earn a living, support your family. You don't necessarily want to get thrown out of your job on the first day. Uh, you know, there's navigating to do in what is ultimately a political dance that we all live in. Yeah. You know, most of us are not candidates for office, but right. we live in we live in social structures that are political. University president or, or department chair is a political being as well as an academic being. You can't be naive that if you if you don't have the listening of those you're trying to influence that they have trust because of either your reputation your previous success you could have all the courage you want and say all the right things and people are not going to follow you so there's a place of really recognizing what you've produced in the world and being willing to leverage that going forward what you've produced in the past and what you're producing real time now in the offers and promises that you're making to people and fulfilling or not. Because what a leader yeah. needs to do is a leader needs to challenge people and invite them into a new possibility. They've got right. to be persuasive to do that. They've got to be credible to do that. Um, you know, um, I'm, I met recently with uh, Justin Solheim, who's the outgoing CEO of Ben & Jerry's. And he said one of the things that they did there was develop a commitment to for everyone in every decision in the company to think with their hearts and feel with their brains. Okay, so like stop for a moment and think about that. And he said, this is not lip service. This is there in every meeting we have. 
You know, we're looking at building a new factory. We're thinking with our hearts as well as feeling with our brains. And he said it produces a very different sensibility in the conversation. They are still a publicly held or owned by a publicly held company. They're accountable to shareholders. They have to deliver financial results. They have to meet, you know, health and safety and quality requirements of all sorts. So this is not soft thinking, but this is bringing a dimension into the operations of a global brand that they will argue has opened up enormous possibility. What do you like about that, Pete? Think with your heart and feel with your brain. Well, I'll tell you, I, I'm not sure I can put it into words yet, but I just find myself on hearing it. He gave me a five seconds to think about it from the time it left Gil's face to the time it hit me. And I realized that is that is not a natural position for me. That causes me a, a, a sense of discomfort. And and I don't I don't know how to uh, I don't know where to attribute that yet, uh, but I know that I am moved by it. Stay with yeah. the, stay with the discomfort. I suspect that part of it comes from our assumption that heart and brain are separate domains, and that there's the domain of thinking and anal analytical and intellectual, and there's the domain of feeling and emotional and soft, and they are not only different we think, but they are of different value. They and and they are in. In many cultures, uh, business and institutional alike, they are uh, sometimes implicitly or explicitly disallowed, right? That we, we're not in a position culturally, we don't allow ourselves to think this way. It's not good business to, to be in this place. And, uh, and we're habituated to not allow ourselves to feel with our, you know, brains. There's the business habit, and like you say, some business law, but there's also our perception of who we are as human beings. Uh, and we're in a, what, multi-hundred-year tradition now of emphasizing the analytical over the emotional or sensual or physically learned stuff. You know, friend of my, Bob Dunham uh, uh, out of Colorado is fond of saying that, you know, like your brain is not in, your mind is not in your head. People, people say, like, I'm, you know, in my head are these thoughts. Your mind's not in right. your head. Your mind's in your body. Mm-hmm. Your brain's a part of your body. It's one of the fun, you know, fundamental organisms of your body, but you have an endocrine system. You have blood chemistry. You have neurobiology throughout your physical being. Learning's going on in all of those places all the time. That's the, so it's not to privilege intuitive over intellectual, as some of my friends right. in California do, but it's also not to privilege intellectual over intuitive, as many of our colleagues in this modern world do. How do we live as whole human beings? that have the benefit of all of that perception and all of that wisdom and ability to integrate knowledge. So, so, so what that provokes in me, Gil, is if our mind is not in our brain, mm -hmm. then the nature of what we're producing lives in our interactions and the conversations. We're inventing this together, and this is part of the learning that you and I have been exploring for years now, is this idea of what does it mean to produce things in the world that is really through the conversation and exploration with others. And, and I think if I, if I watch most people, there's a lone ranger mindset. They, they think they have to figure it out on their own. We have to read alone. We have to develop ourselves alone. And I think one of the things that we've been learning is the nature of what we're inventing happens through having the, a certain kind of edifying conversation with each other that allows things to emerge that otherwise wouldn't emerge if we came to it with, here's the answer. And where the real power in that is, Howard, and, and, and the risk as well, 
is having those edifying conversations with people that we don't already agree with. Oh, yeah. And don't Talk share assumptions with and maybe don't even like. Right. Uh, and to see right. what can then emerge in that kind of conversation. That's right. Uh, I've been, um, as you know, I've been working on building a, a new kind of investment firm. And in my explorations of the partner that I need, the uh, a seasoned fund manager to be my shoulder to shoulder buddy and moving this forward, uh, I've been talking with a gentleman uh, who is a um, conservative Republican economist, voted for Trump. Uh, lives here in the East Bay, so he's a rare he's a rare bird. There's not many of them here, uh, <laughs> but our you know our philosophical perspective, our political perspectives are very different. Our what we observe in the world, how we interpret what we see, is very different. But it turns out we've discovered we are two smart, interesting, open-minded guys who happen to like each other, despite those differences. And we've had conversations about politics and economics and investment strategy that, frankly, I cannot have with my friends and people who I know well and who agree with me on stuff because he challenges me in ways I never would have imagined. Yeah. And I challenge him in ways he never would have imagined. And something comes out of those conversations that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had the courage and the willingness to engage with each other in that open kind of way. Whether we agree with each other or whether we like each other, that we actually see that there's a contribution from people who are not like-minded. That's such a great way to um, for us to sort of begin to wrap this up, Gil, is for people to walk away saying, who am I not talking with or engaging with that really has something to offer what we're doing? But I've stayed away because um, – we don't share a certain way of looking at the world and I need to find a way to engage them. Yeah. And I would push a little further. It's not about who am I not talking with only. It's also who am I not listening to? Very nice. Well, and it's, it, it, you know, we're already speaking to financial leaders. We're, we're already in, uh, in this context in a bit of a privileged place because we have in, for many of us worked hard institutionally to cultivate places where this is okay, where exactly this kind of orientation is, uh, is, you know, acceptable and approved. You know, we have campus communities where we're trying to create spaces where healthy listening and healthy speaking are both. Uh, but you and I both know how much that's challenged today. I know. Education institutions are suffering more than ever from the loss of the capacity to speak openly with each other about ideas that we don't agree with. People don't want to be uncomfortable. You have a very difficult situation. I still stand by the legacy of institutions being able to correct for that. I believe Good. we are not yeah. far gone. I am. I'm on. Yeah, the you have not given up, and yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah, we've talked a lot about broadening the conversation, uh, opening people up to possibility, um, um, thinking with the heart and feeling with the brain, uh, being courageous, uh, asking what might be possible. Uh, but I want to recall something we said earlier on, which is that people also need uh, uh, evidence. Uh, they need data in front of their eyes, they need the felt experience in their bodies. I would not ask anybody to, you know, divert their capital budget in the ways that I'm talking about just because I'm saying so and I'm persuasive. That's not the point. You know, take a look at the nuts and bolts, look at the design experience, look at what other, in your case, other campuses have done, other cities, corporates have done, 
look at the, um, you know, the accelerating commitment to net zero and carbon neutral buildings to, um, uh, you know, net zero water. We're starting to see in arid areas. How do you have a city that lives on rainfall where there's hardly any? Uh, but take these not as abstract ideas. Look at what's actually been built on the ground. Walk into those buildings. Talk to the engineers. Talk to the people who work in them. Look at the economics. Uh, and then look at the issues that you may be facing over coming decades and include all of that in the decision process. Love it. So, Gil, we're going to make it possible for people to learn more about your work. Uh, where would you want us to point people to uh, or the listener to learn more about the nature of what you do? A couple of easiest places. Uh, our website at Natural Logic Incorporated, my strategy company, is natlogic, N-A-T-logic.com. Um, so that's one place to go. Uh, that doesn't change all that often. The more up-to-date stuff you're going to find by following me on Twitter at GFriend uh, or on LinkedIn. Um, and then I periodically write uh, in various venues, including sustainable brands, green biz, um, stuff will be coming up on Medium in the next couple of months. And one other link, which is called declarationofleadership.com. Ooh, I like that. That's sort of the... That's the game plan in brief. Declaration of at least I need that right now. That's oh, right. it sounds very dramatic. There's a story behind <laughs> it, but I'll tell you that next time. <laughs> Outstanding. That means there'll be a next time. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. You can head over to tybalinc.com to learn more about our work in education and subscribe to the show for free. Just click the blue button and we'll send you an email each time a new episode is released. If you like what you heard here today, please share with a friend or colleague you think might appreciate a new podcast in their own library, especially if they're interested in taking on some of these conversations around sustainability. Introduce them to Gil. Uh, on behalf of Howard Teibel and Gil Friend, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Education. Mm -hmm.